You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll read together, beginning of verse 47. We'll read through the end of the chapter. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you have a Samaritan, and do you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Our God, we ask your blessing upon our time of study In your word, it is in your word that you have revealed to us your will for us and who you are and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Give us understanding in these things today and tune our hearts in attentive obedience to what you have revealed, that you would be glorified through the obedience that we offer to you as your people. Give us understanding, we pray today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have learned quite a a lot about the devil and his children from John chapter 8. We have learned that the devil is a liar that there is no truth in him. There has not been any truth in him since he fell from his position as God's anointed cherub. The devil is a liar. He is a the father of lies. And he speaks, when he speaks a lie, he speaks out of his own nature, out of his own resources. He fabricates lies. He comes up with lies. They come out of his own nature. He doesn't borrow lies from other sources. And every lie that is told, and every lie that is believed, and every lie that is circulated, and everything which is not of the truth, finds its origin in the will and the word and the nature of Satan, who is the father of lies and the father of liars. We've also learned that Satan is a murderer, and he was a murderer from the beginning. And anything that glorifies or loves death, anything that results in death, he takes delight in. He loves to kill. He loves to murder. He loves to murder people because they are made in God's image. And so knowing that the devil is a liar and that the devil is a murderer, we should not find it surprising if we see those who belong to the devil as his children slandering the Son of God. Slander is nothing more than telling a lie about someone intending, intending to murder their character or their reputation or them, basically, in a spiritual sense, in the eyes of men. That's what slander does. So if the devil is a liar, if he is the father of lies, and if he is a murderer then his children will be engaged and they will do the desires of their father. They will be engaged in those activities. They will be filled with hatred. They will promote lies and they will use lies to slander and kill other people. And that is exactly what the Jews in John 8 do. They lie about the Lord Jesus and they slander him. 
They slander him. Now, as we've been going through John chapter 8, we are getting almost to the, the climax of the whole chapter. The climax of the chapter really is in verse 59, where they pick up stones to stone him. And verse 58, where Jesus claims to be the I Am. We're drawing near to that. And as we've gone through this last few weeks, have you noticed that the intensity in John 8 seems to be building and getting more and more intense? At 20 verses, 30 verses ago, he offered them freedom. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And it seems that since that point that we found in John 8, 30, 31, where they believed in him, that as we have looked at this, the exchange back and forth, Jesus speaks, they speak, this just continues to build in intensity, and it gets more and more tense and more and more heated. As every time he reveals truth, they respond to him negatively with hostility and hatred. And really Jesus is taking the mask of their their fake belief off and showing the nature of their hearts. And we really start to see it today when they begin to slander Jesus for everything that he has said. In verse 44 through 47, Jesus kind of drew some lines in the sand and he said to them, you don't hear my word, you can't hear my word, you don't understand truth, you don't get it because... I speak the truth. You don't believe me. You'll believe anything as long as it's not the truth because you're of your father, the devil. He is a liar. He believes lies. He promotes lies. He tells lies. You believe, promote, and tell lies. You're just like your father. You are a liar. And you cannot hear or understand the truth because in your nature, you're just like the devil. Those are some strong words, right? That's pretty heated, pretty intense. Well, on the heels of that, now they respond the way that we would expect them to respond, and that is with some slander. Slander. And look what they say in verse 40. Sorry, look what they say in verse 34. Oh, I'm on the wrong page. Sorry. See, when I, when I read the scripture reading, I had to flip the page, and I'm supposed to start down here in the lower right hand corner. Back one page. Verse 48. I was right. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, in these verses, verse 48 through 53, which we're going to look at today, we're going to see basically three things. Their slander in verse 48. Jesus' answer, verses 49. 50 and 51, and then in verse 52 and verse 53, their confusion. Their slander, the answer to their slander, and then their confusion. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. They cannot hear the truth. Jesus already said that. You you cannot hear the truth. You're unable to because you're of your father the devil. And now, almost as if to prove him right, they deny and reject the truth. Which is just evidence that what Jesus has said about them is true. He has told them the truth. You're of your father the devil. And because you're of your father the devil, you will not accept what I say about you. And as if to prove him right, they reject what he says about them. And they turn to slander. So let's look at the slander first. In verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now I want you to notice the tact that they use. Earlier Jesus had asked them, Is there anyone here who can convict me of sin? And that was greeted with silence. They didn't have anything to say. They couldn't convict him of sin. They couldn't prove that he was a sinner. They could have discredited everything he said if they could just prove him to be guilty of a sin. That's all they had to do. Here was a man who claimed to be greater than the prophets, greater than Moses. He claimed to be the one who gives people eternal life. He's the divine son. He's the judge of all creation. He's the resurrection and the life. He has made all of those claims. They could have proved all of that to be false. They could have discredited him in the eyes of everybody if they could just prove him to be a sinner. But they couldn't do that. So instead they do what the devil always does, and that is slander people who stand for righteousness. This is the devil's tactic. He loves to use name-calling. He loves to use pejoratives. He loves to do character assassination, to slander people, to spread rumors about people. That is what the devil does. He is a slanderer. He is a liar. And that's what they do with the Lord Jesus. Instead of winning the argument or trying to win the argument, 
they resort to slander. It's an ad hominem attack. We've talked about that before, right? This is what the devil does. When you're losing, when somebody is losing an argument, you know what people will normally do when they're losing an argument? They will resort to ad hominem attacks. Once they find themselves on the losing end of an argument over the details or the facts or whatever it is, they will just start calling names. That's what they do. You see, we just went through an election cycle. Did you watch it? All over the place, right? You can't deal with the argument. You just call people names. You slander their character. You use some pejorative to call into question their integrity or their love for people or their, or their capabilities. That's all slander. That's what the devil does here with Jesus. These Jews are on the losing end of the argument, and so they resort to slander, and they say to him, do we not rightly say? Do we not say appropriately? I might indicate that this was something that they had been saying previously for some time. Maybe this was what the Jews talked about when he wasn't around. Maybe this was what they had been telling other people was true of him. Right? He's leading the people astray. This is our assessment of him. He's a Samaritan, and he is demon-possessed. And they ask the question in such a way as to almost assume that the answer to this is patently obvious. Do we not say rightly? Are we not correct? Is it not patently obvious when we say that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed, that this is true? And the, the slander takes two forms. There's two things, two elements to it. You are a Samaritan and you are demon-possessed. Let's take those in turn. A Samaritan. What did they mean when they called him a Samaritan? Now you may say, what's wrong with being a Samaritan? I mean, isn't there a parable about the good Samaritan? Weren't Samaritans the good guys? Jesus told a parable about the good Samaritan. To a Jew, there was there was there were few life forms lower than a Samaritan. The Samaritans were the people who lived north of Judea. These were, well, they still were actually Jews or descendants of David or of Abraham. But when the northern kingdom was conquered in the Old Testament, those Jews in the northern kingdom had been intermingled with the Assyrians and other Gentiles. They had not kept their race pure. So in the eyes of a Jew who lived in the south and the southern kingdom, they looked at the the half-breed Jews in the north, which were the Samaritans, and they viewed them as apostates. Do you remember back in chapter 4, we talked about all the reasons why the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Jews hated, hated the Samaritans. There were few life forms lower on a Jewish totem pole than a Samaritan. The Samaritan was one of the worst. It is difficult to think of an insult more demeaning that they could have come up with than to call Jesus a Samaritan. To them, a Samaritan was somebody who had broken covenant with God, been unfaithful with God, been unfaithful to the law. The Samaritans didn't recognize any of the books of the Jewish Old Testament except the first five. The Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Everything else that they rejected. And they had their own priesthood. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They had their own forms of worship. They had their own uh, their own sacrifices. They did all of that to the Jew. They looked at the Samaritans. Here are law-breaking, Bible-denying, apostate, half-breed Jews who worship a foreign god in a foreign location in an illegitimate worship service with an illegitimate priesthood and an illegitimate Bible. To them, that was the worst of all possible combinations. That sums up how they viewed Jesus. They view Jesus as somebody who led the people astray after a false god. They said of Jesus that he broke the Sabbath, just like those Samaritans. They said of Jesus that he denied all of their traditions and all of their laws, just like the Samaritans. They said of Jesus, they hated Jesus, just like they did the Samaritans. And here, they had claimed to be the, the purebred descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said, you may be physically Abraham's descendants, but spiritually, you are apostates. And listen, when the Jews claimed to be the children of Abraham... There was nobody who argued more vehemently against that than the Samaritans. The Jews said, we are the true children of Abraham, physically and spiritually. The Samaritans said, no, you're not the only true children of Abraham, spiritually and physically. We too are descendants of Abraham physically, and we too are descendants of Abraham spiritually. We have a worship. We worship the same God that you do. 
And now Jesus has said of these Jews, you're not Abraham's descendants. Pure, faithful, faith-filled descendants of Abraham with Abraham's faith. Well, that's the same thing that a Samaritan would say of a Jew. And so they label him a Samaritan as if that is not bad enough, as if being called a Samaritan wasn't despicable enough. They threw this in, and you have a demon. And you have a demon. You're demon-possessed. That was a way of saying of somebody that they were insane. Because in that day, people who were insane or were crazy, who acted irrationally, they would be attributed as being possessed by a demon. If you acted illogically, irrationally, um, in a way that wasn't, you know, just like a lunatic, a crazy person who had lost their mind, they would say, you have a demon, you're possessed. And so when they call Jesus demon-possessed, they say, you're Samaritan, and you're demon-possessed, they're saying, you are Samaritan, you are the worst of all possible life forms, and you are possessed by the devil himself. You're demon-possessed, you have a demon, and you have gone insane. You have lost your mind. This is not the only place they called him demon-possessed. Back in chapter 7, verse 20, there are other places in the three other Gospels, but in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 20, when Jesus said, why do you seek to kill me? Do you remember what their response was? You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Right? You've, you've gone insane. You've lost your mind. Who is it that you say is seeking to kill you? So that's what they accuse him of. Being a Samaritan, the worst of all possible life forms, and being demon-possessed. Now listen, of all the insults that a Jew could put his lips to, that was the, about the worst thing that they could possibly come up with. And there's something about this accusation of Jesus being demon-possessed which seems particularly distasteful, isn't it? I mean, really, any accusation which besmirches his character or his purity, his integrity, his glory, anything that is untrue of him, spoken untrue of him, is horrible and wretched. But to call the pure paragon of virtue, the spotless, sinless Son of God, possessed of a demon, that just has a, t- a distaste to it that is the worst. And yet that's what they called Jesus. They slandered him like that. Both of these accusations, by the way, and this is interesting to notice, both of these accusations are things that Jesus has said is true of them, but they take it to the next level and throw it back on Jesus. Do you notice that? They had claimed to be Abraham's descendants, physical descendants. Jesus didn't deny that. But then he said, spiritually speaking, you don't belong to Abraham. You don't have Abraham's faith. So Jesus has denied that they're Abraham's spiritual offspring. And so they kind of take that accusation or that statement and they they put it up a notch. Oh, yeah? Yeah? Well, you say we're not Abraham's descendants? You're a half-breed Samaritan. Right? Take what that Jesus says. Intensify it a bit. Throw it back on Jesus. They do the same thing with being possessed of a devil. Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So what do they say? Oh, yeah? You say, we, we do the desires of our father? Well, you're, you're demon-possessed. Which that's worse. This is like having a conversation with a couple of children, right? I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, same thing's true of you, but infinity. That's, that's all they're doing, taking the same thing that Jesus has said, throwing it back at Him in a more intensified fashion, as if this is even remotely true. That's all they're doing. Listen, Christian, if you're going to be faithful and true to righteousness, you ought to expect that the devil is going to wield the same weapon against you at some point. Have you ever been called names? you ever been called something? wasn't true? By somebody that you loved, maybe? Somebody who's close to you? Somebody that respected you? By the newspaper? By, I mean, any other story could be a thousand sources, right? I'm just, I'm not even looking forward to the day when I, I do a search for my name online and something horrible comes up, a whole site. I thought about buying the domain, IHateJimOsman.com, just so somebody else can't do it. There's, when somebody says something horrible about you, it can be incredibly painful when you know that that's not the truth, especially when it's spoken by somebody that you think should respect you or love you or that you have a relationship with. Slander is a horribly painful thing. There is a way of avoiding slander, by the way. 
Just go with the flow. Don't stand for truth. Don't proclaim the gospel. Don't take issue with sin. Just be an absolute anonymous Christian. You will avoid slander. You'll also avoid faithfulness. But you'll avoid slander. I think that the tide or the sentiment toward Christians in our country is turning. We are not the favored religious status of the land any longer. It is amazing to me to see what has happened in the last few months and years as the sentiment against Christianity, against righteousness, against anything that is true, anything that is righteous, anything is holy, begins to change. And the level of slander toward Christians, name-calling and intolerance and hatred and hostility is increasing and increasing at fever pitch. Listen, brethren, I don't think it's going to get better. I think it's going to get much, much worse. Did you watch what happened to Dan Cathy when he simply came out and said, I support traditional marriage? Wow. Really? That one statement? You think that would have happened 20 years ago? 25 years ago? That wouldn't have. The, the more our culture and our nation and the people around us and the world loves darkness and embraces darkness and embraces the culture of death and homosexuality and abortion and uh, everything else involved with it is all part of the culture of death. The more our world embraces that and loves that and the more they express their hatred for the light, the more we're going to see this name calling. It's going to get worse and worse and we're going to be called names. Horrible names. Get used to it. You ought to take joy in it, by the way. I mean, look, being called a name is no discouragement from the work of Christ, is it? So they called you a name. Does it hurt? Yeah, sure, it hurts. But listen, they did this of Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but you're not of the world. Jesus chose you out of the world, and if He chose you out of the world, then the world is going to hate you. And so if the world hates you, then take joy in that, that you are not a friend of the world, and thus an enemy of God. Stand for righteousness and expect that the same thing is going to happen to you that happened to the Lord. And if they did it to Him, they'll do it to the faithful believer. Anybody who reflects light, stands for light, suggests that light is right and hates darkness, is going to receive the unbridled hatred of the king of slanderers, and that is the devil himself. All right, so that is the accusation, or that is the slander. Now look at verses 49 and 50. This is the the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges truly, truly. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now verse 49, I just want you to notice how calmly Jesus responds to their accusation. You are a Samaritan, you have a demon. Jesus doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't get upset, he doesn't do name calling back, he doesn't revile them, he doesn't call into question their character or their integrity, he doesn't, uh, it doesn't raise his voice. This is just a very calm, reasonable, reasoned answer. I don't have a demon. I do not have a demon. I honor my father. Now, the connection between those two statements, anybody who had a demon was incapable of honoring God. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't have a demon, and so I do not dishonor God. Instead, I honor my Father. I have come to do everything that the Father gave me to do. Everything that I do pleases the Father. And you dishonor me. Now here's a bit of an irony. They thought that Jesus was the one who was calling into question orthodoxy. They thought that Jesus, with all of His claims and statements, was the one who was guilty of dishonoring the God that they claimed to love and serve. And this is the irony. They accused Him of dishonoring God and in accusing Him of being dishonorable to the Father, they themselves were dishonoring the Father. Why? Because Jesus said back in chapter 5, to honor the Father, you have to honor Him. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So how do you and I honor the Father? We honor the Father by giving honor to the Son. And in honoring the Son, we honor the Father who sent Him. And we do the Father's will 
Just like Jesus. When we reflect and give honor to the Son for who He is in His majesty and His glory, we are in essence honoring the Father who sent the Son because the Son is the full manifestation of all that the Father is, all His character and person. And when we honor the Son, we are honoring the Father. We as Christians never have to worry that by giving honor and praise to Jesus, we are in some way neglecting giving honor and praise to the Father or to the Holy Spirit because all three persons are the one God. And to honor the Son is to give honor to the Father who sent Him. And that's what the Father has called us to do. We are to honor Christ. And in honoring Christ, we honor the Father. Jesus does not have a demon. says, I don't have a demon. I honor my Father. You dishonor me. Jesus didn't come for His own glory. That's what He means in verse 50. I do not seek my own glory. He didn't come to be His own God or to seek His own glory or to do His own will or to manifest His own, his own agenda. He came to seek to honor the Father. But Jesus says, there is one who does seek. And the end of that sentence should be, there is one who seeks my glory. I don't seek my own glory. There is one who does seek my glory. Who seeks His glory? The Father does. This is the beauty of our Trinitarian doctrine of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit seeks to magnify the Son and draws and points everybody's attention to the Son. So that when we honor the Son, we are honoring the Father. And the Father is seeking and pursuing the glory of the Son so that when the Son is glorified, He is glorified. And when the Son is glorified, the Spirit is glorified. And all three persons of the Trinity receive glory in that way. So you and I pursue the glory to the Father by giving honor and glory to the Son. And in giving honor and glory to the Son, the Father is seeking that. He wants that to happen so that in the Son being honored, the Father is honored. Do you guys see that relationship that exists between those persons of the Trinity? You never have to worry, if, if I glorify the Son, am I neglecting the Father? It's impossible. The more you glorify Christ, the more the Father is glorified. In fact, that's the way we glorify the Father. That's the way we glorify our great triune God. By focusing our heart and our affection and our worship upon Christ and giving Him that honor, and then the Father is honored through that. And Jesus said, I do not have a demon. You dishonor me. I'm honoring the Father. I don't seek my own glory. I'm here to honor Him. There is one, the Father, who seeks my glory, and He judges. And he judges. And these Jews were guilty of dishonoring the Son, and in so doing, they were dishonoring the Father. And Jesus is saying, this God, this Father, who is seeking my honor and glory, He is going to judge you for not giving me honor and glory. How does the Father glorify the Son? He glorified the Son by raising Him up before all men on a cross. He glorified the Son in the resurrection. The Son is glorified in the ascension. The Son has been seated at the right hand of the Father. And there's coming a day when all men will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when they do that, when they honor Him as Lord, the Father will be glorified because the Son will be honored. That is how the Father is pursuing the glory of the Son. Jesus prayed on His night before His crucifixion, Father, glorify Me with the glory which I had with You before the world was created. And that's exactly what the Father wants to do. Honor His Son with that infinite, impeccable, pure, spotless glory that He enjoyed with the Father before the world was. Because when the Son is magnified and glorified like that, so will be the Father. Now look at verse 50 again. The one who, he is the one who seeks and judges. So not only does the Father seek the Son's glory, He will judge all who refuse or fail to give honor and glory to the Son. Now look at the promise in verse 51. There's a way of escaping judgment. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps My Word, he will never see death. Truly, truly introduces a... a a phrase or a saying of solemnity or of special importance. We've seen this over and over in the Gospel of John. It's a way of Jesus drawing attention to what He is about to say, saying, listen, listen, this is very, very important. 
The one who keeps my word will never see death. That's an important statement. Now they immediately get confused by it. They immediately reject it. But Jesus says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. What does it mean to keep his word? Does this mean that only those who are obedient to Christ earn their salvation by being obedient? It's the one who keeps my word who gets salvation. Jesus is not describing that. He is not saying that we earn salvation by keeping God's word. He is describing the one who has salvation as one who keeps the word of the Father or keeps his word. In other words, Jesus is not describing how we earn salvation. He is giving us a mark to identify those who have genuine salvation. Remember what chapter 8 is all about. Drawing the line between the true convert and the false convert. And removing the mask, the facade of fake belief. And showing that those who had believed, quote unquote, in one sense, were not true believers. And Jesus is saying this, the true believer is the one who keeps my word. The one who does not, will never see death, is the one who is obedient to me. That's what it means to keep his word. It means I am obedient. It means I submit to His Word. I love His Word. I embrace His Word. I receive it. I take His yoke of Lordship with joy. It is my joy and my glory and my crown to enjoy the Lordship of Christ and submit myself to it. It is the one who keeps His Word who is the one who will never see death. Now, does that mean that you and I will never experience physical death? Is that what Jesus is saying? It can't be that, right? Because He promised Peter, you're going to die and here's how it's going to happen. At the end of this gospel, we know from experience that believers experience death just like unbelievers, right? You're going to die. Does it mean, as some have taught, that this saying means that those who are obedient and keep Christ's word will never experience any pain in death? That they will never see the, the pains or the agonies of death? That's not what he's describing. Listen, not only are you going to die, but it might be painful. In fact, it might be agonizingly painful. And there is nothing that you can do to avoid that because it's going to be horrible. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that there is an element or a part of death that you and I will never experience and never see. We will never look upon it. We will never be in it or basking in it or being part of it. That's what it means to see death. There are three elements of death that you and I escape. One of them is the spiritual death that we have been born into by being Adam's descendants. We are born children of the devil, dead in our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. We come into this world without any spiritual life in us whatsoever. Not a spark of life, not a spark of hope, not a seed of divine goodness, none of that. We are born spiritually dead. The one who keeps his word is one who has been delivered from that state of spiritual death and will never see it again. There's a second element of death that we have been delivered from, and it is our eternal physical death. Eternal physical death. The body that you see in front of you and that you look at in the mirror every single day is a body that is decaying and rotting and it is dying and it is eventually going to be put in the grave. But here's the promise. It's not going to stay there. God is going to raise it up. You will someday receive a new body, a glorified body, fit for the joys of heaven, fit for a physical kingdom, a physical heaven in which there will be physical things, a new heavens and a new earth to glorify and honor God for all of eternity. You will escape and never look upon a permanent physical death of your body because your body will rise again. Your body will rise again in life, a body that is fit for life and power and glory. There's a third element of death that you and I escape and that we will never see, and that is that you and I will never see the second death, described in Revelation chapter 20. When Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, when John writes, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the death, second death, has no power. 
No power. So what is, what is the death that we escape? The ultimate final torment of the wrath of God upon all who will not give honor to the Son by believing upon Him. That is the death that we escape. We escape the spiritual death that we are born into. We escape the physical, eternal death of our bodies by being resurrected from the dead. And we escape the second death, which is the lake of fire and eternal torment, where God pours out His wrath upon unbelievers. That's the death that we escape. Will we still go through physical death? Yep. We will. But listen, even though physical death is a serious thing, the sting of death has been taken away for the Christian. There's nothing for us to fear. We do experience physical death, but all the rest of that, the spiritual death, the eternal death, we will never taste that. Never. This is from the lips of the Lord Jesus, another promise of the security of the believer. The one who is keeping his word is the one who is the true believer, and the true believer will never see death. There is no possibility that the one who belongs to him will eventually be lost and will taste death after all. If you have been delivered from the state of spiritual death, you will never see it. You will never look upon it. You will never go back to being dead and suffer the wrath of God in hell. That is his promise to you. Now look at their confusion in verses 52 and 53. 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now you know we, now we know you have a demon. Now they had already accused him of that. And now they think that Jesus has just proved that to be true. Now, you say that if anybody believes in me and keeps my word, he will never taste death. Does that sound like the words of a madman to you? Does that sound like the words of an insane person to you? Of course it does. I mean, you can understand that. If somebody walked up to you, a person of flesh and blood, and said, look, by believing in me, you will never taste death. You will never see it or look upon it. You will never experience second death. Eternal life comes through what I say and you keeping what I say. It's no wonder that they, since they viewed him as a normal man, would think that he was insane. And now they think that he has proved it. Aha, yeah. See? Now we know you have a demon. Now we know that you are insane. Because you say, if anybody believes in me and keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Let me ask you a question. Is that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say that they would never taste death? Or did Jesus say they would never see death? Now you might think that that's a distinction without a difference, but it's not. It's a significant distinction. And here's why. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, right before his transfiguration, he said, there are men who are standing here today who will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in all his glory. And Jesus was referring to Peter, James, and John whom two verses later saw his glory manifest on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. Those men did not die physically. They use a phrase that speaks of dying physically. There's never going to taste of death. In other words, you will live forever and never have to die. Now, did they misunderstand what Jesus was saying, or did they misrepresent what Jesus is saying? It's hard to tell if this is intentional or not. But they misquote him, and they take him to be speaking completely of the physical. You say if a man believes in you, he's never going to taste of death. And yet we know that Abraham has died and the prophets have died. All the great spiritual lights of our nation have died. The, the forebearer, the forefounder of our people, he has died. And yet you say, as an insane man, that if anybody keeps your word, he will never taste of death like Moses and the prophets. Who do you make yourself out to be? You have to be insane to believe that. And they've accused him of being possessed of a demon. And in their mind, Jesus has just proved them right. But I want you to notice there's an irony in the passage. They think that Jesus has just proved them right when they accused him of having a demon. They think he's proved them right because now he said something that to them is insane. Now we know you have a demon. But here's the irony. They have just proved Jesus right. 
Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil, and you cannot hear or understand or embrace the truth. You're unable to hear the truth. They prove him right by misunderstanding exactly what he just said. They prove him right by showing they could not hear the truth. Here he spoke the truth to them and it went right over their heads. He spoke of salvation to them. They didn't get it. It was a fog. Jesus spoke to them of being free. They didn't understand it. Jesus spoke to them of spiritual death and spiritual life. They didn't get it. How to be delivered from the eternal wrath of God. They didn't get it. The truth was right there and they could not see it. And they think that he is insane. They have accused him of being insane. They think that his offer is insane. And when he repeats his offer, they say, oh, you just proved it. They have just proved him right. He said you can't hear the truth. He gives them the truth and they can't hear it. They can't respond to it. They don't even know what to do with it. Abraham died. The prophets died. David died. Daniel died. Isaiah died. We read through the Old Testament and what do you, what do you read? You ever read through those chronologies of so-and-so begat so-and-so and he lived so many years? And all of them end the same way, right? How do they end? And he died, right? Sometimes I'm reading through that and he died. And he begot a son and he died. And he begot a son and he died. And he died and he died and he died and he died. And that's their point. Now you say he can live. They think he's speaking physically. They've completely missed the point. And Jesus is not speaking physically. He's speaking of spiritual death and spiritual life. Now they ask two very important questions. And these are the two questions that you and I have to answer. Look at verse 52. Verse 53, sorry. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Here are the two questions. Are you greater than Abraham? And whom do you make yourself out to be? Are you greater than Abraham? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Look at that first question. Are you greater than Abraham? Do you remember a similar question from the Gospel of John already? Back in chapter 4, the woman at the well said, Are you greater than our father Jacob? And now in John chapter 8, the Jews are asking, Are you greater than Abraham? And really, this is what the Gospel of John has written to answer this question. Who is Jesus greater than? Is he greater than Jacob? Yeah, he is. Is he greater than Abraham? Yeah, he is. In John chapter 5, Jesus claimed to be greater than Moses. The answer to that question is going to be the same no matter what name you put in there. You can put any Old Testament saint. You can put any the name of any person who has ever lived. And the answer to that question will always be the same. Jesus is greater than X. doesn't matter who it is. Why? Because he is not like X in any way. He is the eternal, glorious divine, immutable Son of God, Son of the living God, one in nature and substance with the Father. Not one in person, a different person, one in nature. He is the eternal God manifested in human flesh. He is the infinite God in a body. So He's greater than all of those other men. And that's the answer really to the second question, whom do you make yourself out to be? Those two questions are key. The answer to the second question, by the way, determines where you spend eternity. The answer to the second question determines where you spend eternity. If you make Jesus Christ out to be something less than God, you will be lost forever. That's it. There's only one answer to that question that you can affirm that will save you. Jesus Christ is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Jacob. He is the eternal God. He is the I Am. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now they asked him the question, Whom do you make yourself out to be? And you can hear the derision there, can't you? Who do you think you are? It's derisive. It's intended by them to be derisive. Who who do you think you are to claim, to make such claims? You're nothing more than a demon-possessed Samaritan, and yet you think of yourself as something great. Well, judging from his claims, he must be something great, because if he was not the eternal Son of God, then he was a madman. Those are really your two options. If he was not the eternal Son of God, 
in human flesh, if he was not fully God, then he was a madman because only a madman or an intentional deceiver would make the type of claims that he made. And Jesus is going to answer their question in the very next passage, which we'll look at next time. And this is the answer to the question. He is the I am. And that is what they must get. That's what they must understand, that he is the I am. He's the Jehovah God of the Old Testament, of the burning bush, of Exodus chapter 3. And if they don't get that, they will die eternally in their sins. Now, do you think they'll embrace the truth when they hear it? Don't get your hopes up. Listen, our hope, our confidence as Christians rests upon this, that the one whom we have believed for eternal life is not just a prophet. He's not just a patriarch. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a moral leader. He's not a spiritual revolutionary. He's none other than the Son of God in human flesh. Our confidence and our hope for eternal life and in believing this promise and receiving the benefits of this promise rests upon the word and the work of none other than God himself. That is why we rest with such joy and confidence in the person of Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for a salvation that has been brought to us by your Son and purchased for us by him. We again look at what you have delivered us from and what you have opened our eyes to, and we we rejoice in all that you have done for us in Christ. Thank you for the joy that it is to receive from your word the truth and encouragement from the lips of the Lord Jesus, knowing that having been saved by you, we are those who have been obedient unto the doctrine to which we have been delivered. We have been obedient because by your grace you have turned our hearts to the right. You've granted us repentance and faith, and by your grace we serve and know you today. And so we have this confidence and joy in our hope is that we know that we will be with you forevermore in eternal glory and bliss and joy because of what Christ has done. We will never again look upon or experience spiritual death, separation from you, or the wrath of God. And for that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.